0: Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is something different. Instead of having live conversations with people in the studio or, more recently, online, today we listen in on interviews that were conducted in the 1970s with fishermen from the Maine coast. We draw from a special oral history collection at the University of Maine's Fogler Library called The Life of the Maine Lobsterman. We specifically feature three conversations with local fishermen Andrew Gove from Stonington, interviewed in 1974, Tim Staples from Swan's Island, also interviewed in 1974, and Edwin Lawson from West Tremont, interviewed in 1972. At the time of his interview, Andrew Gove of Stonington was 44 years old. Before we go any farther with the introduction of the voices you will hear today, we want to pay a special tribute to Andrew Gove. A couple days ago, as we were just finishing editing this episode, we heard the unfortunate news that Mr. Gove passed away over the weekend of June 20th, 2020. He was in his nineties and had only just recently decided it was time to stop fishing and come ashore. We are honored to share the voice and stories of a younger Andy Gove on today's episode of Coastal Conversations, and we can't help but acknowledge that his voice is made all the more poignant by his recent passing. Mr. Gove's life story and his dedication to his community represent an iconic characteristic of the Maine lobster fishery. We share our sincere condolences with the family of Andrew Gove, the Stonington community, and the fishermen of Lobster Zone Sea. The interviews we share today are among many that were recorded by students of Dr. Sandy Ives, the well-known Maine folklorist and founder of the Maine Folklife Center at the University of Maine. Of the 20 or so interviews in the collection, we chose to feature these three fishermen because they represent a fairly tight fishing area, Swans Island, Stonington, and West Tremont the area that now straddles lobster zones B and C, and because they span a diverse age range of fishermen from early 20s to mid 40s to 70s. That means that the clips you're about to hear record memories from the 1970s all the way back to the 1920s. There aren't a lot of people alive today that can share stories from the 1920s, so these recordings felt especially important to treasure and share. If you're like us, you will immediately compare what you hear from the 1970s to what you know about the fishery today. On this show, we chose to just let the stories speak for themselves. Maybe on a future episode, we'll bring in some contemporary fishermen who can help us tease out how much things have changed since the 1970s. One final note as we get started with these old interviews is just that. These are old archival interviews. Though we've edited and cleaned them up a fair bit for quality and length... Full interviews are over an hour long, while our clips are just 10 to 20 minutes. We can't get away from the fact that the recordings happened around the kitchen table, on old cassette machines, and that the audio contains background noises that can be distracting. If you have headphones nearby, pop them on your ears. It will enhance your listening experience. So, here is fisherman Andy Gove, interviewed at his home in Stonington, Maine in 1974 by David Littleton Taylor from the University of Maine. It's only fitting that Mr. Gove's voice be the first we feature today in honor of the man who passed away less than a week ago. Early in this 20-minute conversation, the island that Gove refers to growing up on is Eagle Island in Penobscot Bay.
1: How old are you, Andy? Oh,
2: 44.
1: Hmm. When did you start fishing?
2: Well, I got my first license when I was seven. Hmm.
1: Was your dad a fisherman?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I lived with my grandmother and grandfather, they brought me up. And of he fished for, well I dare not say how long, but he was 68 when he died. And he'd been fishing ever since he was old enough to walk. So all you can do when you live on an island. is Fish your farm and I couldn't grow anything guess <laughs> Even grass wouldn't grow for me. Did you always think you are going to be a fisherman? Don't know anything else, so what can you do?
1: What sorts of things did you do when you were seven, when you first started?
2: Oh, I still love it. That's been my main stay. I've gone seining in between. I've well, done a little other kind of fishing, but nothing to speak of, mainly lobsters. It's been the safest one of all the fisheries, I guess, so far. I'm pretty sure you're going to eat. Whereas if you go seining, you might not.
1: When did you first start out on your own?
2: Well i learned to row in a rowboat with a we had a piece of pipe my grandfather put a piece of pipe on the shore and tied me onto that and i don't believe i was over seven years old then and i got so i could grow hard enough to tow that pipe down the shore so <laughs> he let me go and i'll always remember that i still vaguely remember the first time they had to wear there in the cold, and there was a stake they had there to tie the twine Sane rack, we used to call it, that they kept the sane on. God, I rode off then and went floundering. I still remember that. That's 30 some years ago. And I felt some big to think I'd got clear in that rope and that piece of pipe. (laughs) (laughs) Graham was always giving him the devil, afraid I'd fall overboard and get drowned or go adrift. I guess, really, she had good reason because I wasn't very big. I wasn't bigger than the pint of peanuts. We always had fish wares, he always had hearing wares. And that's probably what got me into sailing. is, plus the wares kind of gone out now. I went with other people two or three different times, and then I, I run an outfit here for Caldwell Brothers for quite a few years. And then I got an outfit of my own and paid dad off and went on my own. What was your first
1: boat like that you had, first powerboat?
2: Well, a summer woman. A summer woman gave me this boat, the first one that I had. It was 14 feet long. It used to be a centerboard sailboat.
3: Hmm.
2: And Grandpa took the centerboard out and put a shaft log in it in a five-horse gray. A little five-horse gray motor. That was my first one right there. Yeah. So you fished all summers all through school. Oh yeah. All, that's how I got all the money for my clothes and everything when I went to school. We. Things was pretty hard them days. If you got a few dollars, it was. If you made fifty dollars, be good as a thousand now. Nobody had any money. If they saved up three, four hundred dollars to last them through the winter, they done well.
1: How would you finance uh, buying a, a a big lobster boat for yourself and getting the traps up?
2: Well, I worked my way up. Most of it is. I went without. There no one wanted to let anybody have any money. Twenty-five, thirty years ago, they didn't have any themselves. And even the dealers didn't want to let any money out. You know, they... A small amount of money was the most that anybody could get. And I just kept building another two or three traps Each year, I'd keep gaining up a few. And getting, I went a little bit better boat, and then a little better. And this is the only new boat I've ever had, is this one I got now. It's a long haul when you have to earn your way up. Before I got up as good as I am now, a lot of these young fellas could go to the bank and borrow the money they needed and buy stuff better than I had. And I never liked that. I didn't think it was right. I don't think they realized. A lot of them, I think it was a waste to them because they didn't do anything either. They didn't realise what the business was, they hadn't had enough chance to get an experience. They just went to the bank and borrowed all the money they could get and thought they was going to get rich and get awfully disappointed. And also, years ago when I first started, a lot of the old fellows wouldn't have let you fish, you you know, they'd have cleaned you out overnight. if. If you tried to fish a lot of parts, they only let you fish just a few and you had to get to know them and kind of work your way in. Whereas when all these wardens and things started showing up, why nobody dared do anything and the old fellows died off, and now I, I won't say anybody, but most anybody that is anywhere near reasonable at all can get a string again. And if he knows the business and knows the people, he can fish it they wasn't so generous and so free about things as they are now There were certain places and they still is, as far as that goes that you just i'm not saying you can't fish it but i'm going to say that it will cost you more than it's worth to do it because they'll just keep at you until you stab you to death
1: mm-hmm.
2: you ever get a warning before somebody cuts your gear off oh yes nine times out of ten you will they'll either hitch the spindles or leave the doors open and something of that sort. Would they tell you to move them or anything like that? Oh no, they won't say no, they won't come see you face to face. Yeah. That would be a very foolish trick for them to do because two of them do the same trick. Mm-hmm. You'll just have to guess it, who done it and that's not good because nine times out of ten you'll get the wrong one. I think a lot of it is just foolishness. Somebody gets a little AJ and something happens Maybe a boat runs down through there and cuts off four or five parts doing it. And somebody blames it on somebody else and then he might go cut off seven or eight of that fellow's trying to get even and that fellow will blame it on somebody else and go get eight, ten of hears. Each one wants to get more. This thing, you know, you've got a mess. Mainly, this is, when this, anything like that happens, it's between two towns, not one, you know, one town. You know, some fellas from here would go over, we'll say over to Vinyl Haven. Well, they shouldn't go over there anyhow. Because them fellas got to have a place to make a living just the same as we have. I'd say this area here had some of the best fishermen in it. What I mean by being best is not in catching the most, but it was probably as far from that. But it's the idea that, you know, they're more friendly towards each other. There isn't so much fighting amongst themselves, as they use in a lot of other areas.
1: How do you think fishermen should treat one another anyway?
2: Well, I think that they should, if they're going to fish somewhere, I think they should start out with with somebody that's already fishing there until they learn how and where. They should serve their time, just like everybody else does. If they go on and they wanted to work on the quarry over here, they had to serve an apprenticeship for so long. They should do that fishing. It's a lot to learn.
3: Hmm.
2: The way the tide runs, where the gear goes in a storm. You got to know how each storm is going to use them traps. A certain storm will move them one way and another storm will move them another. Places that they'll stay there and stave up and other places that they'll go ashore. Some places they'll just move off and be all right. If you don't know these places, why, it's, it's going to be hard on you and hard on everyone else. The biggest problem right now, there's too many traps, there just isn't no room for them. Just as soon as the shadows start again this fall, there's going to be gear, it's going to be just a now. Come a storm and you got a whole shore lined with gear and they'll all go in one great big pot and all wind up. The ones that don't go ashore are a off.
1: Excepting the wintertime, is that the most bothersome fishing time for you? And the the winter time
2: come? is better is for it? me because I fish long walks in deep water and then I then the gear stays there. You've got to have a good boat. You've got to suffer a lot in the cold. i grip my teeth more than once to stay there. In fact, most every day I ever went out in the winter time. <laughs> if you can stand it that first couple of three hours, you're all right. You get half frozen, you don't care if it's frozen on. Till you get home, try to thaw it out again.
1: When do you find time to work on your gear if you're fishing through the winter?
2: Just the bad days. It takes all of them. Right? Makes you a full-time job year round. I've got, oh, I've got about 130 parts, I'd say, down here now that I haven't got headed that I built last winter, bought and built. Just haven't had time to do it, take me a month of bad days to take care of it.
1: Would you say it was an average uh, number of traps for fishermen to have around here?
2: Well, they've gone into big figures. It used to be that if you had a hundred parts, you had a good string twenty years ago. Now I'm going to say an average would be four or five hundred. About
1: how many do you fish?
2: I said I never was going to say again. Because every time, I'll tell you how these fishermen work, every time they find out what you got, they build another hundred so to get ahead of you. And then when you find it out, you build another hundred, to get ahead of him. And that's been going on that way now. They've built more than they need.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I've cut back. I haven't got so many as I did. Because I can't take care of them. And it's foolish just to have something to get in somebody else's way when it, you're not going to make anything from it. A lot of them will put gear in a place where there won't be any lobsters for a month. But they don't want you to get there ahead of them. And if they're there, the day be a certain day that they'll come out in one of these parts. And whoever's there and got their parts there will do better than the fellow that just happens to move along and come o- hmm. you know, come along second, you might say. It's a waste of gear and really, in the long run, they're not making any money by it.
1: How much would you say is invested in just a trap in the, the buoy in the war?
2: I would say a trap alone without any rope would run around probably $10, $12 now. How much do you think it costs for
1: a young fella to get to start fishing? What sort of an investment would he have to make for boat and uh, traps?
2: Well, if he was going to start off with a new boat and rig it up right and buy everything brand new, traps and all, and have enough to do something with, I'd say it would cost him forty, fifty thousand. 50000 but this, I'm saying that for this year. Mm-hmm. sure. And you notice things have slacked off because things have gone up almost double. You could have got a pretty good outfit for 20000 a year ago. But now it would cost you probably forty, anyway.
1: Do you think people will start dropping out because of the, the prices? Or?
2: I think they're going to drop out now on account of the catch. The catch has gone downhill this year wicked. And it's going to go down more, I think. Because every time this has ever happened to us, Seems so. you'll get four or five years that they'll hang up there pretty good. And then there'll be four or five years they'll keep dropping down, dropping down. The last two or three years has been good. This year they've gone downhill, way down. And if they hold true to what they've done in previous years, they're going to keep going down. It's going to hurt. It's got to hurt somewhere. The thing that's been helping us around here is this gill netting. They've done pretty well gill netting. When something new like that happens there'll be a lot of them give up their lobster traps for a year or two and go doing that and that helps a lot the fellas that still go because the lobster you don't catch that other fellow has got a chance to catch it mm-hmm. that's why I think that a lot of them are not too interested in seeing any more it. and you can't really blame them because they've they've been at it all their life and they've had a hard struggle to get where they've got and they're going to have even a harder struggle to stay there if taxes, insurances and the cost of everything keeps going up, fuel has doubled, so if it keeps going the way it is, the gillineting may help out.
1: Now, a lot of the people I talk to who aren't familiar with the coast see lobster fishing is a pretty pleasant job out there on nice days, catching lobsters.
2: On a nice day, there's no better place in the world. Yeah. But anybody that don't know, uh, if they could come and go for the whole year and find out how many days was nice and how many days was bad, one offsets the other by far. You'll have three bad days for every one good one you ever see, probably more. I've gone all winter and never had a calm day. And of course you don't very often get a warm day. And then in the summer, I've seen this thicker fall and stay that way for three months to a time. And that's not fun poking around in that old fog all day, having it hanging out of your eyebrows, and breathe it in your lungs. And hmm.
1: So you've got radar on your boat. Does that help you with the fog? Yep.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But it won't find your part, boys. Mm-hmm. It just more or less gives you your position. You can see one island and run from that to the next one. You know where your traps are, you run to the side of the island and they're on. Or you can use get some range bearings from somewhere and tell by that, take a bearing on a piece of land, and get your distance off of two pieces of land, you can almost pinpoint a position, but it's hard to get anything that's that accurate. And you yeah. move your parts so many times that it would take you forever to keep writing that down and you never could remember it all.
1: Who do you sell to? Who do you sell your lobsters to? Sell to the, to? the co-op. How do you like working with a co-op?
2: Well, I think it's the only thing to do. If there's any profit or anything bought, why, it's partly yours. You sell to another dealer, and they build a new wall or buy a new car, they don't belong to you, it says.
3: Hmm.
2: How do you get into a co-op? There's not much trouble to get into it, just sell to it. All they require here, I think, is just to have you be a Participating member, if you sell your lobsters there, then they'll accept you. But if you're going to just go in there to get a vote in the dock, go sell somewhere else, then they say no.
1: Was the uh, was fishing lonely for you before you got a, a, a radio aboard your boat?
2: Well, no, I don't know that I've missed it any. I think the radio, the safety part of it, was the thing that always made me feel good. Is, so many times years ago that we've been broke down and you didn't know when anybody'd ever find you or where you might drift to or if you were going ashore or going to stay where you was or what was going to happen. You find that news travels fast uh,
1: from harbor to harbor?
2: Oh, Gary, since they've had them radios, there isn't a thing that happens what we know it. Price might have been 20 cents difference between here and Portland years ago and we wouldn't have known the difference. Now they know it in a day. The minute it changes, they know it. What sort of advice
1: would you give to somebody that was just starting out?
2: I'd tell them that they'd better go do something else. Really? Yes, sir. I'd never, never encourage anybody to go upstream. I think that they've got a hard road to hoe, now especially. There's so many young boys growing up that lives right in these towns that their fathers before them have been fishermen, and they've learnt the ropes, and they know what they're up against and some of these the parents may have three four boys just going fishing and very few of them that hasn't got one or two so it's bound to increase the number of fishermen instead of decrease it. and it's overfished to begin with so to encourage anybody into it a man would be foolish still. would
1: you do do it over again if you knew what you knew now
2: no i don't think i would no i don't think i would I've been working here, see, 30 odd years, and I'll be working 30 more if I live that long. Some of these fellas that went for a few dollars a month into service and stayed there for that long could retire with more money than I make. They wouldn't do so good when they started, and they wouldn't be their own boss. But in half of the years, they could retire and live comfortable and do what they wanted to. They got the rest of their life for themselves. They haven't got no boats to worry about, no storms, no headaches. If you're going into this business, boy, you've got some headaches. You've got to get up in the middle of the night. You've got to stay up all night. You've got to fight the storms, the wind, the weather. It isn't good.
1: What are some of the things that you like about lobster fishing?
2: Well, it's good to be your own boss. For one thing, I know that much. Grows on you too, I suppose, just like anything else. If someone done it all their life and they don't know anything else, or it just comes naturally to you.
0: That was Andrew Gove, a lifelong fisherman from Stonington, interviewed in 1974. Towards the end, Gove commented he'd already been fishing for 30 years and might fish for 30 more. As it turns out, Despite the fact that he might not have recommended new people to get into the fishery back then, Gove himself fished for nearly 50 more years after this interview. We're especially moved by Gove's interview, as we learned recently that he passed away over the weekend of June 20th, 2020. We hope hearing the voice of a younger Andy Gove can bring some solace to his family and friends. You're listening to Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. On today's show, we're taking a step back in time to the 1970s, featuring three interviews with fishermen around Blue Hill Bay and beyond from an oral history collection called The Life of the Maine Lobsterman," housed in the Special Collections at the University of Maine Fogler Library. Our second fisherman, Tim Staples from Swan's Island, is the youngest one in our group. In this clip, the interviewer is once again David Littleton Taylor from the University of Maine. Though we never officially learn Staples' age, we guess he's in his early 20s. The interviewer starts by asking Staples at what age he first started fishing.
4: Probably, by myself, 13. But I used to go out with with Dad when I was smaller. And of just watching bait pockets and stuff once in a while. What did you have for a boat when you first had one of your own? Um, first I used to use... My brother's 13-foot boat. Oh, he used to go out and then I used to go out in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. And then I got my 16-foot skiff. So did you fish uh,
1: summers when you were going to school?
4: Yeah. About how many traps do you have out there? Um, probably I started out around 50. And then up to 100 the last summers. In the last, oh, three years I went during the falls too. When I could get away from school, mm.
1: what you use the money for that you you earned during the summer?
4: Um, things like Christmas and clothes, and, and I put some in the bank, which went fast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the older fishermen give you much uh, many hints about how to fish. Um,
4: just my father, you know. Tell me little spots where I should, where there might be some lobsters and in around rocks and where there was a rock and. Where there's a little count bed and
1: things like that. Is that generally the way it is? Fishmen get information from their relatives.
4: Yeah, I think so. Hmm. To a good extent. That's that's how most kids learn anyway. Is from their fathers and watching where other people's gear gear goes and hmm. things.
1: How do uh, the fishermen in the uh, in the big power boats react to? Uh, people that go out
4: in outboards like you do now. Um, they don't mind at all because mostly it's father-son relationships, mm. and they understand that, and they like to see new fishermen coming up because they want the the industry to grow, especially here in the island. Because there's some fear that the number of licenses may die out, mm. and the number of fishermen may die out, and they don't want that, but they don't. They're not too crazy about summer people putting out a few traps here and there, mainly because of they feel that summer people will take any kind of a lobster. Too short, punches, anything. You know, they're taking them home to cook and eat, so whereas someone else wouldn't, you know, who was doing it for money and was interested in, in the industry. What
1: do you think about uh, fishermen's cooperatives? I think they're
4: a good idea. It gives the fishermen a little little money back. Usually they get I don't know, five cents back on a pound or whatever it is. Hmm. And they're running their own business and sort of kills the middleman in that the lobster dealer. And it gives the fishermen a little more profit, which they always need. But
1: how many traps do you have now?
4: I have about a hundred and ten out now. But I hope to have a hundred and fifty or so. Shortly, mm-hmm. I plan on buying some more and having a good fall, fishing as many as I can.
1: Think it's lonely being a fisherman?
4: Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, you're out there out in the ocean. Oh, it's it's nice. No, I think you have to you have to really like it. I mean, if you like being with people in crowds, and then you might not like it, but. You're out there all alone by yourself. Even on some days, on rough days, you get the feeling that, that you're against the ocean, man against the elements, are, so there's even some challenge in it.
1: What usually causes fishermen to be lost? What are some of the things that uh, uh, kill fishermen?
4: Um, Things like um, when you're setting traps, getting the rope twisted around your foot, and then putting your boat on through a fort full throttle and <laughs> you go over the stern and a lot of fishermen can't swim. So, I know my father can't swim. Can you? Yeah. But I don't know if I can swim with hip boots on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Why is it that fish, a lot of fishermen don't swim?
4: Some of it is because of the cold ocean water. That it's cold and they never learn when they're, when they're children. Whereas if you live next to a lake then you might you might go swimming, but
1: what do most guys do in the wintertime around here?
4: Quite a few guys now go skull up in during the winter. Because you can go skull up in when it's. It find somewhere in the lee where, even if it's rough, you can find somewhere where, in the lee where it isn't too rough. And there's some guys who just haul up all the traps during the winter. And just build new traps and fix up old traps and their heads. And, and there are some people who, who fish during the winter when they can. even. If it's only once a month, they still go out and make what they can.
1: What's the average number of traps? Would you say per fisherman around here?
4: Well, it's hard to say because there, there are fishermen who fish two hundred and fifty and three hundred, and there are fishermen who fish a thousand, well, six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred. It varies. It's. I think a good percent of the fishermen are in favor of a 300 trap limit, even if they fish more, Mm -hmm. but they feel that they have to, where, because someone next door is fishing a thousand, they feel they have to fish six or seven hundred, just to keep up. But if everyone was going to fish 300, everyone, then they'd be happy to do it.
1: Is there ever any exchange of information as to what's the best way to fish? Or
4: people pretty close-mouthed about the way they fish? People are really pretty close-mouthed. Especially as far as when to fish where and where to fish and where they're getting lobsters. They really... If you're getting lobsters somewhere, you don't want to tell them your next door neighbor because he'll put traps there. and If he puts traps there, he'll catch lobsters that you won't catch. So. Mm. If somebody asked you how you were doing on a day, what would you tell them? Say you had a pretty good day. Well, either you'd tell them, sometimes tell them the truth. Depends on who it was. Or lots of times you'd tell them you wasn't doing anything. Just so they wouldn't look around and, and say, ah, he's got traps over here where I don't have traps. But everyone watches everyone else anyway and watches where they move traps. And You see a guy take a load of traps somewhere and you say, uh-huh, that must be where they are. <laughs> sometimes, like with With some of the other boys fishing in skiffs around, then we tell each other how we're doing. Mm -hmm. Because we really doesn't make too much difference. It it averages out so that we all about do the same anyway. Once in a while, someone will pick up a few more here and there, but we all have we all fish in mostly the same areas. So, and lots of times you don't tell them exactly where you get lobsters, but you compare how you're doing it. And we use we haul along together a lot, anyway. We just stop and talk three, four times a day.
1: Mm-hmm. When you're lobstering, are there places where you can't set your traps, where people won't let you fish?
4: Yeah, because there always is. There's places it's other people's area that you don't go in. How do you find out that it
1: belongs to somebody else?
4: Well, if you've never fished there, then it belongs to somebody else, <laughs> it's one one thing. And you don't go in and set traps in in a strange area. If people from your area are fishing there, then it's okay. People from your harbor are fishing there. But if no one from your harbor is fishing there, then you really don't want to move in. Mm -hmm. Or if you move in, move in very gradually.
1: Now, do you have your own area that you'd uh, exclude other people from fishing in?
4: Yeah. But I don't, myself, where I'm not, maybe not going to be fishing, that I'm not so, so strict about mm. outsiders. And in fact, the men over here aren't nearly as, as they would be some places. Because out here there are people from Storrington who are moving in slowly, and people from Bass Harbour are moving in slowly. And, whereas over on the other side of the island, they're supposed to be a lot, a lot stricter about about strangers coming in, and they they have no qualms about cutting someone off or anything.
1: fishmen never give people
4: warning before they cut them off warning like tying up their warps or something or cutting off one instead of cutting them all all off, but everyone loses in a trap war, so i don't I don't ever know of any, but you hear about the having been one years ago.
1: What do you think it takes to be a, a successful fisherman?
4: A lot of hard work. You have to fish at least 300 traps, I should think. But also, you have to know what you're doing. Some people are a natural fishermen. There are people who could set a trap and catch a lobster. And there are people who could set 10 traps and then right around them and couldn't catch a lobster at all. So it's, it's a, there's a lot of know-how. Experience has a lot to do with it.
1: Do you have to know a lot about navigation?
4: No, not an awful lot. You have to know enough to to maneuver around in the fog. But once you fish the same area for years, it's it's not too hard. Hmm. You just gotta know which direction which is and, and everything it's different during the winter and in spring when you're fishing more offshore that it's harder because there are no not so many landmarks to go by. But during the summer when, when it's gonna be foggy, when most of the fog is and everyone's fishing close to shore it isn't too hard you know. Of course there are there are people who run way offshore to fish. Who run 20 or 30 miles on a hundred miles to fish, so... What do you think the future holds for lobster fishing? I think if the lobstermen get together and put in some conservation measures, that, that there could be a good future. But if they don't, I think the future's will would be bleak. Besides trap limit, what sorts of measures do you have in mind? Um, I'd like to see the 200-mile limit put into effect. I don't know if if rushes, trawlers, or anything are really taking lobster's, but if there's a chance, it would be... Plus, I'd like to see some kind of seasonal put on, where you can only fish certain seasons or certain times a year. But I, even, I think the 300-trap limit would start would make a big dent in it, mm-hmm. or be a step forward. Do you think,
1: if there was a closed season, do you think fishermen could support themselves for the period of time that the
4: that fishing was prohibited? Yeah, I think so. As far as, if there was a closed season and a 300-trap limit, they'd be doing so much better that they could work for half a year just fishing, mm-hmm. and the other half they could work on their gear. They get, get built up. And it seems like they might do better.
0: The management changes recommended by Tim Staples of Swan's Island in this 1974 interview were never implemented. But I would venture to guess that none of our three interviewees could have predicted back in the 1970s the amazing lobster boom Maine has experienced since the 1990s. While some things have remained the same in the last 50 years, like the resourceful nature of lobstermen, the important role of lobster dealers, and a fierce loyalty among fishermen towards their home community, other aspects of the industry have changed beyond anything anyone back then might have imagined. You're listening to Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. On today's show, we're taking a step back in time to the 1970s, featuring three interviews from an oral history archive housed in special collections at the University of Maine's Folklore Library. We're very fortunate that there are several other collections like this one, most of them compiled by well-known folklorist, the late Dr. Sandy Ives and his students with the University of Maine's Folklife Center or its precursor. Our final interview, Edwin Lawson of West Tremont is at 73 in this 1972 interview, the elder of our group. We can't know for sure, but I would bet our first two interviewees had heard of Edwin Lawson and maybe even learned from him as he was a respected old timer back then already and they appear to have all fished in overlapping territories. As you listen to Edwin Lawson, Note that you're hearing memories that go as far back as the 1920s, a century ago, when lobster smacks were still in operation. These lobster cargo vessels had holes drilled into a well in the hull to provide water circulation and oxygen for the live lobsters as they were shipped to markets near and far. Before refrigerated trucks, smacks were an important part of the lobster industry. Lawson's life spans many other dramatic changes in the fishery, as we will hear in this 1972 interview with Rita Swidworski of the University of Maine.
5: So your father was a sardine fisherman. What did his father do? Was he a fisherman too. Well, long?
6: his father came from England. He was, I guess, he was a farmer mostly. He was so, shipwright and shipbuilder, and that's how we had the settled here, he and his brother.
5: So how, how old were you when you started lobster fishing?
6: Well, I'm 73 now and I've been going nine years this time, steady, mm-hmm. of course I, I went quite a number of times, years before that, you know, I didn't really make a business of it,
3: mm-hmm.
6: well, I had traps up when I was 12 years old.
5: Who did you um, go with when you were 12 years old?
6: Oh, just myself, small rowboat, you know. I you know, uh-huh. uh, only had 15 tracks. Did
5: you sell your lobster at that time? We used to sell them or? 25
6: cents a piece. They did sell them, I guess some of the regular fishermen sold them to a pound but they used to buy off us of boys.
5: Who um, bought them from you? Like there that used to be a,
6: a boat come around, they call Lobster Smack. come comes from Rockland. Small vessel with a... With a whale in it, so you know to keep them alive.
5: Did the snacks um, were they owned by one person in Rockland? No, or? they
6: was owned by the lobster companies.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: You know the people that owned the uh, the buyers. A. C. MacLone was the one. Some come from Dallas from Rockland, and all uh, oh, they come from all from west Boston. You know, most of them down this way. The buyers was in Rockland. When did the
5: snacks? up coming?
6: Um, they, don't, they don't have They don't come, no. It's uh, been oh, quite a few years. Well, they might in some places, you know, around the islands, but uh, on the mainland, they they don't, they mostly go by trucks. They run them through to Boston or New York, wherever they, you know, whether they're selling. Of course, there was, it wasn't there as many fishermen then as there is now. There's no, uh, no small outboards, no uh, kids going, you know, a part-time. Now the people that's got a good job, they, just when they get through work, they go lobster in the afternoon, you know. They never used to think of it, man. Of course there wasn't any outboards. I had the first outboard round here, anywhere, a little two-and-a-half horsepower, like it says, robots. How old were you then, when
5: you had that? Oh, I was
6: about seventeen.
5: How many? Um traps did you have at that time when
3: you were 17?
6: Oh, well, I probably had, uh, I was working with my father around the wares and I just uh, take up the time. I had about, oh, about 35, 40. We had wares on Swans Island, we had wares on Black Island, and we had wares down here at Mitchell's Cove and we had wares at uh, Pazanich.
5: Now wares are the nets?
6: Well, the stakes, uh, you know, grow in the in the ground, really, and uh, and the nets around them. And then they take a seine and and go inside and seine the fish out. You know, get them up so they can uh, take them out. And then there is, uh, some of them has twine that's hung right in the stakes and uh, they pull them up, you know, and uh, take the fish out that way in small boats, and then uh, we used to. But now they, they take them up and They'll fish right into a sardine boat, big boat. There's no wares, there's no wares now. The sardine business is it's all done here. Far the wares though, some seen but the uh, last few years that's been pretty well shot.
5: Who was the person who first taught you about lobster fishing?
6: Oh, I don't know. I used to go with my brother when I was a kid. I suppose that's where I got it from, there's not much to it, you know, to just go and set traps, anybody can do that. When you get a lot of traps and make a business of it, that's a different thing, Mm -hmm. you know, just like everything else.
5: What did you like about it, besides the money?
6: Oh, I don't know, it's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it always interests me anyhow before before I ever got into it. Making a living out of it years ago uh, seventy five to a hundred traps was a was a big string of traps And now the, the big fishermen they run up to a thousand traps. I used to run about five hundred about them now now I'm getting older i only run I run about four hundred some of them have a a man with them you know. I always went along. Oh when the boys were small they used to go with me and help me, but as soon as they got big enough they wanted a boat. Now they can either one of them catch more lobsters than I can. We all fish in the same area really. Oh, my oldest son fishes outside. I don't fish outside, I fish Blue Hill Bay altogether. So I only go about seven months a year. After 1st uh, December, I, it ain't, ain't worthwhile fishing in this bay. You have to go outside. I used to take my traps up and go scalloping. Straight scallops. I, I went scalloping about 35 winters altogether. I had a different boat, a little bigger boat. and I gave that up uh, 15 years ago, I guess.
5: When, when you first started out, I- did you?
6: What kind of traps did you use? Well, we use softwood traps, and yeah. now everything's hardwood. Mm-hmm. The softwood trap wouldn't last more than two years. The worms get into them. The sea worms, you know, and uh, when the hardwood lives—they don't—they uh, don't get into the hardwood lives. Only well, there's certain places that they'll get into them, but uh, the only thing we don't have much trouble with worms is.
5: How far is your territory Like how, how far do you go, a day, say, to?
6: Well, I well, both sides of Blue Hill Bay from, uh, well, from Bass Harbor up as, uh, well, up as uh, Hydrod Island, and across the bay, and down on the other side, uh, part way down, not, not clear down, but part way down.
5: And so how do you, how do you do it? How- how do you pull up your trap, save? Oh,
6: we have a hydraulic heister. It's, um, it's, uh, it runs off the engine. It's a big pump runs off the engine, and there's a hydraulic motor. And there's two big discs that's, well, uh, a shape shaped like that. And the rope goes right in between them and pinches them. And it'll haul in, and there's a little thing they call a knife that goes in under the between the discs that cut that rope out, you know, don't cut it, it uh, just disengaged it so it'll drop down, you know, so it won't wind clear up around. So I lost the end of that finger. I got mm-hmm. it under the rope and took it right off. It's mm-hmm. knife.
5: When was that? In about two years ago. Do most of the boats now have this? Yes, ideal? practically all of them. How heavy are the traps? when you pull them up their water lines?
6: Well, of course, we yes, have to cement them on rocks, you off know, the ballast. Why? Well, I imagine they're like 75 pounds, probably. Some mm. of them ballast them heavy, than others. I don't balance mine too heavily. Well, I think probably when they're soaked, some of them weigh 100 pounds. But
5: what is a good a good catch for a day? How many logs, did?
6: Well, a pound. Wonder, wonder how many traps you're running.
5: Well, say for you, and what Well, right
6: now, 150 pounds is a good haul for me. It's on these outside boats, and uh, when the lobsters are running good, they pick up four or 500 pounds. But there's more lobsters outside at times than in the bay. We get spittier fishing than they do outside, but... We don't catch so many lobsters, really, as they do on the outside.
5: What's the best time of year for the biggest haul? Oh,
6: from, from, from September through October, November, here in the Bay.
5: Do they ever, can they crawl in and then crawl out again if you've left them?
6: No, they can, but not too much now, where the heads, uh, heads and the traps are made. They long. longer. Some of them might get out, but the bigger ones will stay trapped. They stay trapped. You'll fall up a trap sometime in the spring. You get lobsters out of it. It's been there all winter.
5: think they're, are they pretty active in the winter here in the bay? No,
6: no, there's nothing here in the bay in the winter. They leave the bay altogether. I don't know where they go. whether they go outside or whether they just crawl and hide? Why? But outside they fish all winter, but... Uh, they can't make it pay the last few years. They used to be pretty good fishing out there in the window, but now most everybody goes shrimping now.
5: How many men fish in this Blue Hill Bay?
6: Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. They fish from uh, all up around Blue Hill, you know, up around Blue Hill, Swan's Island. They they, they fish everywhere, right into the bay. Some of them fish outside, of course, but most of the people live in a, inside the bay. Uh, they uh, they all fish in, practically all fish in the bay. Not too many go outside. But the Bass have a boat like that. Southwest side. They fish outside all together.
5: How do they get along here with each other in the bay?
6: Oh, pretty good. Eh? They some feud in, but not too much. Oh, I have a, once in a while they have. A, Think somebody's doing something to them, they'll cut low gear, but not too much. Since I've been going, I've never, never had any trouble, not too much. What trouble we have in the bay is uh, we can't fish Sundays, and that leaves uh, Sunday for the, for the, well, summer people to, you know, they've got the outboards and they'll haul your the traps.
5: Oh, really? What, what would you do if you knew who was? Like doing well, if it. the, the,
6: warden. the warden catches them, but, uh, it's quite hard to catch them. These outboards now, they go, some of them go 40 miles an hour. And mm-hmm. <laughs> they couldn't catch them if they wanted to, but they don't try to catch them. We've only got one warden here in this whole area. For the whole bay? In this whole bay and, and all along this coast here, for mm. the coast, from Southwest Harbor to Swans Island, I think there's only one warden. There's one up in the bay, one up Blue Hill. That's uh, that's one of our main troubles. We ought to have more wardens. But we don't have much trouble amongst the fishermen, the natives like that so much as it is uh, the outsiders. Mm-hmm. Especially in summer.
5: What colors are your blueys?
6: Mine's orange and white. Is
5: there any reason why you pick those colors? or?
6: Well, you've got to pick a color. That's, there's so many colors. You've got to pick a color, you know, that's, uh, that's easy to see. Orange and white is a good color. Orange, especially on the water. is, a, is one of the best colors. And there's more orange on boys now than any other color. If they've got them mixed in with red and green, and, you know, um, and might up different. These wouldn't.
5: No, they? I use
6: plastic altogether, foam.
5: The styrofoam. Hmm. When did you switch? Did you switch over recently,
6: no? Well, I've been doing it gradually for the last ten years.
5: Are they better? Well, yes,
6: uh, they're really better because they don't—they don't soak up. Take like a wooden boy after they've been out over oh, three, four months; they get heavy. But the plastic boys they never they never get heavy. They're all just the same. You can, you can take them in one day and paint them the next. Where a wooden boy, you've got to dry them out for months, sometimes, before you can.
5: Did you used to make your own boards, too? I used to. What kind of wood did you use? Cedar.
6: Yeah, they all, cedar's the best. Lighter. It don't soak like uh, spruce.
5: When you first started lobstering, um, did you have a license then?
6: No, I didn't have a license then.
5: Uh, yeah.
6: You didn't have, you had to have your name on the buoy, that's all. I think from uh, about uh, 1920, 19, 1920, I think, when they started having numbers. I ain't, I'm not sure.
5: Numbers on the buoy?
6: Yeah, you had to have a, you had to have a license and uh the number.
5: Are there uh, ever any accidents out? Is there ever any drownings you've heard of? Or?
6: Well, there was one here this summer, a part-time fisherman. He was camping down the, on the islands down below here Black Island. And he was out in a small boat and they, uh, outboard, and I guess the outboard stopped, which was rough, and he, when he went back to, to clear the something out of the wheel, I, she fell over the stern. She was a small boat with a big motor on it. And he had a, there was a woman with him, and she guess she swung ashore. She held him up long as she could. He couldn't swim, I guess. And they got his, they found him. The next day,
5: do you know how to swim?
6: Well, I don't know. I used to <laughs> It's yeah. been a long while. Well, I could swim some, but I've never too much at it.
5: Would you say most fishermen know how or
6: well, it's a good uh bet I'll, I'll bet half of them can't swim it's pretty hard to swim sure so if you what water your oil clothes on boots to, to get them off to swim
5: what are oil
6: clothes the pants you know come up with straps over your shoulder I and mean, the, the, the coat that they're the waterproof years ago they, they used to have it was made out of cotton and uh, and oiled you know the Something in the oil, so the oil stayed on the outside, up and made a coating. Mm-hmm. But they wasn't near as good as they are now.
5: What did um, you've done other jobs besides lobstering? Mm-hmm.
6: Yes, I've worked uh, in the spring and the in the fall. I used to work up the summer place up for. Sure, here ways I worked up there for about seventeen and eighteen years, you know, off and on. Well in between the lobster and scallop season when there wasn't much doing. Since I was married I that's all I've lobster and scallops.
5: When you were I uh, twenty, what, what did most other young men around here do for a living? Oh
6: were they well, yeah, well, in the summer, a lot of them used to go yachting. There used to be a lot of yachting jobs in the summer. And, uh, and then there was a lot of work over here on the park at that time. Rockefeller had a big job. He employed a lot of men. And different jobs, you know. There wasn't too many. He went lobstering. Not when I started, in.
5: why do you think you did?
6: Oh, I guess just I was always on the water. I thought it's an easy life.
5: Is it a good feeling, being out on the water?
6: Oh, yes. I. In the summer, I see the sun come up from across the bay about every morning.
5: Oh.
0: Mm. Edwin Lawson of West Tremont, who you just heard, must have watched thousands of sunrises over Blue Hill Bay in his lobstering career by the time this interview was recorded in 1972 when he was 73 years old. Though our clip was less than 20 minutes, Lawson was interviewed a total of four times with multiple hours of audio from Lawson in the life of the Maine Lobsterman archives. There is so much great history in these archives, and others like it, that were collected by Sandy Ives and his students in the early days leading up to the creation of the Maine Folklife Center at the University of Maine. Now that we've discovered these collections, we're excited to bring more of these voices to the airwaves in future episodes of Coastal Conversations. If these stories whet your appetite and you want to hear full interviews or learn more about the collections— Links to the original audio files and the archives that house them can all be accessed via the Coastal Conversations show page on the Maine Sea Grant website at seagrant.umaine.edu. If you want to hear this show again, especially with headphones, go to weru.org and find the June 26, 2020 Coastal Conversations episode in the Public Affairs Archives. We're grateful to so many folks for helping put this episode together. We're especially grateful to the Maine Folklife Center, without whom these interviews would never even exist. And Desiree Butterfield of Fogler Library Special Collections at the University of Maine was a great help in accessing the old audio files. Thanks also go to Ella Keegan, El Gilchrist, and Julia Harcourt, students at College of the Atlantic, for research and production support. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month, and we also encourage you to listen to our sister program, Talk of the Towns, with host Ron Beard from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.